Things are speeding up, and we are no exception. It's our first Friday news edition of the new season, and I'll be talking with our Player Watch news analysts, Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 10th. It's show number 18 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have our first Friday news edition for you. We'll have our League Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including some EH targets. Sounds weird, the National League, doesn't it? Some injury and COVID news in Atlanta, and his take on Keeper League rules for the short season. And Ray Murphy will be along with news from the American League including some AL COVID guys, the Mike Trout uncertainty, American League pitchers who could be ready to go long innings when the season opens, and much more. It's all the news that's fit to applaud. It's a big Friday news edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Three weeks till reopening day. We've got to talk some baseball. in the first inning of this Friday news edition, our player news reports. Ray Murphy on deck with the American League news and leading off, it's the National League report. And our old friend Harold Nichols is back. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's sure been a while. It has. It's good to be back. Thank you. It's great to have you back. Uh, before we start talking about the National League and the news that's going on there, uh, what are you doing in your own leagues that you play in? Have you decided to restart, not restart? How are you working it? We're waiting at this point for here my commissioner about how how that may happen, and uh, so I really don't know at this point. I, it may be uh, as we get closer to actual actual baseball. Uh, I think some guys who are in the league are probably going to reach out to the commissioner and say, "Hey, what's going on? Are we going to do this this year or not?" But you know, this is one of those things that could shut down any time, so you don't want to invest a lot of uh, 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 drafts that have already happened, so don't want to invest a lot of other prep time in terms of scheduling and that sort of thing, until you know that the, ma- the Major League season is going to happen. Yeah, and, and I know I've talked to some people who say they don't really want to invest a lot of time in drafting new teams because they're not at all confident that the, that the 60-game season is going to run 60 games. In fact, uh, you know, there's lots of indications that there are going to be health problems sooner or later that, that cut things off, and then there's going to be a huge argument among leagues and among MLB itself and all that kind of stuff about who wins and what, what are the standings. It's a nightmare. And a lot of people just say, you know, to heck with it, I'll wait till next year. But presuming you go, your league is a keeper league. How do you think keeper leagues should handle the whole idea of whether keepers are counted for this year or whether the 60-game uh, season doesn't count for purposes of was this a contract year, is next year an option year, those kind of questions? Well, you know, our, our keeper leagues are perpetual, so we can keep them forever and don't have salaries. And so that that's not a problem for us. But, you know, in terms of, of a lot of folks who do have salaries and, and options and keeper leagues, I think I would just, my tendency would be to say this season is just as though it's not there, just to wash. It's a free play on the keepers and doesn't count against anything because I, who knows? I, we could start and have the season last two weeks. So I think I would I would be tempted to suggest that those leagues just kind of say it's a wash for the year and it doesn't count against contracts and all of that sort of thing. I think you're right. Uh, I don't think it's something I'd uh, I'd let interfere with my playing in a keeper league if I was in one, but uh, I would certainly lobby for that. 
uh, it's such a short time. And, uh, you know, if you've invested, you know, some kind of a long-term contract on a, on a Mike Trout or somebody, and he doesn't end up even playing, then you lose that year that you paid for, uh, at some time in the past, it just doesn't seem fair. And, and if you're thinking about whether to extend guys and stuff, it again, it doesn't seem real fair to make you do it this year when you've only got this, uh, 60 games or possibly even less. Uh, I, I don't like it. So I agree with you there. Uh, Nick, uh, one of the how is this going to work issues among many arising from the new season is how the universal DH is going to affect National League teams and players. Now, Jock Thompson recently covered the DH issue in the uh, Playing Time Tomorrow column. He covers the National League West, and he was looking uh, at Colorado, I thought was pretty interesting, because they have a few options, especially now that the potential DH, Ian Desmond, has announced he's not going to play this year. So, who benefits in Colorado from the DH, and who especially benefits with Ian Desmond bowing out? Well, you know, I think there are a couple of players who have who have uh, real potential for for benefiting in Colorado. If we assume that uh, with, with Ian Desmond gone, uh, Daniel Murphy seems like a logical choice to move from first base into, into the DH. He's 35 years old. Uh, he, he's been injured, so it's, it would be useful to have some protection from him not being in the field. Uh, and so there's a possibility, certainly, Jock says, of uh, Daniel Murphy moving uh, to the DH spot. That would let Ryan McMahon move back to first base, uh, which is a, a position he's, uh, he's played before. And, and so that then begins to open up at bats for Garrett Hampson and Brendan Rodgers. Um, Hampson's one of those guys who's had some trouble finding a, a, a position in Colorado. He switched around between the infield and the outfield. Uh, and if he can ever get a full season of at-bats in, and this won't be a full season, but even a half season like he showed in the second half last year, here's a guy who can have some real value. Uh, batting average, that could be, uh, won't hurt you, able to steal a lot of bases. So Garrett Hampson looks like a real beneficiary to me of the DH situation. And especially with Desmond bowing out, you've got Hampson who can play second, he can play short, he can move in the outfield. You've got that kind of utility guy who can be very valuable in a short fantasy season. The other guy who could be really helped if he can get on the field is Brendan Rodgers. Uh, Brendan Rodgers seems like he's been a prospect forever, uh, and has certainly had a uh, he's had problems. He's only 23 years old. He's had problems producing at the major league level at this point, and problems staying healthy. Uh, but he's certainly likely to get more of a shot uh, that with the DH than he would have otherwise. And another guy I think worth worth looking at. And you mentioned the possibility that uh, Garrett Hampson could fill in a little bit around the outfield, and we know that Charlie Blackman has tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, he's an outfielder. David Dahl's never been a real physical specimen. He's an outfielder. So it looks like Hampson has really multiple paths to get playing time, and if he's forced to play some outfield because of uh, the health situation out there and the departure of, of Ian Desmond, who was ticketed for at least some playing time out there, now Brendan Rodgers seems to also add another way to he could get playing time although as you say so far in his career he hasn't done much with it yeah right but you know if you look at our current projections on Hampson and certainly our projections are, are uh, uh, fluid at this point but we're currently projecting four home runs 14 RBIs 10 stolen bases at a 262 batting average so he's, he's right on that borderline of being a $20 ball player uh, with the current number of bats we have projected and we're looking at Hampson right now at 75% playing time that could probably go up uh, depending upon, uh, as you said, other injury situations or COVID situations that might develop. 
Yeah, in fact, Hampson and Brendan Rodgers both got the biggest playing time projection bumps in the uh, new NL designated hitter era, Jock Thompson reports. Uh, talking about Ryan McMahon, uh, batting buyer's guide column to Stephen Nickrand had a column recently called uh, Integrating 95-plus mile-an-hour exit velocity rate. And he says in that column that Ryan McMahon should be on people's radar. Yeah, very definitely. I, I few, uh, that was a very interesting column that Stephen wrote in looking at at uh, which guys are producing a 95 uh, plus mile per hour exit rate and uh, and how, how often does that happen? Uh, and he said that Ryan, that Ryan McMahon carries some real intrigue as we head into the season. He had a 95 plus mile per hour exit rate at a, almost a 47.7% clip. Uh, that's a lot of hitting the ball really hard. And he says that level is associated with a batter that produces 28 expected home runs and a 74% expected contact rate over the same number of plate appearances that McMahon had last season. Uh, and it's much better than his actual 24 home runs and 67% contact rate. Uh, and with McMahon, we're still looking at a guy who's developing, who's young, uh, with hitting the ball that hard. This could be a, a sort of a breakout season uh, for Ryan McMahon. So I would certainly have him on my radar. I like this column because... Uh, uh Stephen Nickrant focused not on average exit velocities, which we see a lot of. What he was looking at is how often do guys hit 95 or higher exit velocities as a percentage of the times that they put the ball in play. And I think that's a really big difference and something that that really uh, stands out as an analytical tool because it doesn't help you to have a guy who has a 95 plus mile an hour average if he if it's all sort of a whole bunch of 100s and a whole bunch of 60s, you know what I mean? And right. and, the, and they somehow average out to 95. What he's looking at is players who exceed league average for producing hard hit balls as a percentage of their of their times up there and the uh, average over the last 5 years has been in the mid to high 30s, sort of 35-36% is is league-wide average. And so when you're talking about a guy like Ryan McMahon, who's over 40% of his at-bats uh, hitting the ball that hard, I think that's a, that's something that you need to take uh, take a hard look at. Now, I'm not sure how much I buy this idea, though, Nick, of hard contact being correlated with contact rate because, you know, just because you hit it hard doesn't mean you're necessarily putting it in play a lot. Uh, maybe I misunderstood what he was talking about, but I think of a guy like Joey Gallo for the longest time who hit the heck out of the ball, but missed it a lot too. Yeah, you know, you, you go back to, yeah, you go back, you go back to, uh, it, it takes me back to Weebly Keeler, hit him where they ain't, you know, and that's got to happen too. It doesn't matter if you hit the ball hard if you hit it right at somebody. So it's a matter, uh, you're right, it's a matter of uh, not just hitting the ball hard, but hitting it into gaps and places where fielders aren't and being able to control that part of the game as well. So exit velocity isn't everything, but it's certainly, I, I was intrigued by that column, and it certainly gives us some players who are interesting to look at. In fact, in Stephen's column, he says the contact rate is negatively correlated with these very high uh, exit velocities. So uh, that might be uh, an indication that while hard hit contact rate is high because of the velocity, you're probably looking at more strikeouts, which certainly puts a limit on uh, on batting average, RBIs, those kind of counting stats because you can't do anything when you strike out. But very interesting column for sure. A couple of other National League names you should mention, Dansby Swanson and Brian Reynolds, uh, guys who don't generally pop to the top of people's lists when they're thinking about who to draft, but 
here's a reason to think about drafting those two guys. Uh, staying with the DH issue for a moment, uh, we mentioned Jock Thompson's article about the National League West. He also shone a light on the situation in Arizona, where the DH opening could give another shot for the Diamondbacks to a former Diamondback. What's the story? Yeah, you remember a guy named Jake Lamb? I, you know, Jake I Lamb had a couple of great seasons in 2016, 2017. Uh, put in those two seasons, put together almost 60 home runs, uh, almost uh, 200 RBIs, uh, and a, a decent batting average for hitting right around 249, 248. Uh, and then suddenly, the last two years, it dropped off the map. Uh, Jake Lamb's only 29 years old, and uh, part of the, he's been injured the last couple of seasons. Uh, so it would give him really, I think, another shot. He's going to have to produce right away if he's going to stay in the lineup. But give him another shot at playing time. Uh, and uh, at that age, he's still at a peak age. Uh, you, you, you never know what might happen, especially in a short schedule. We talked about Ian Desmond opting out in Colorado. Another National Leaguer taking the pass is uh, Atlanta veteran Nick Marcakis. In playing time today, uh, Baseball HQ reporter Phil Hertz covered the Marcakis news and the announcement that first baseman Freddie Freeman is going to miss some time with what sounds like a serious case of COVID-19. Uh, so there appears to be some playing time opening up in Atlanta. So who figures to gain there? Yeah, you know, that, that they're, they're, as you're right, there are two situations going on there. Freddie Freeman, and uh, it was a, an encouraging tweet from his wife uh, uh, yesterday, which I think it was yesterday, uh, today is Friday. So it would have been on Thursday, an encouraging tweet from his wife that says his symptoms are improving. But it sounds as though Freddie Freeman is really struggling at this point with the, with the virus. And so uh, he certainly is likely to not be ready when the season starts and going to miss some time. Uh, the, the guy who's likely to benefit both from Marquecas bowing out uh, and from the Freddie Freeman situation is Adam Duvall. And Adam Duvall is another guy that, uh, you know, we remember what, what Adam Duvall was a couple of years ago when he was hitting 30-plus home runs and batting at 100, 100 uh, runs per year. And then last year, uh, only 120 at-bats, 10 homers, 19 RBIs, 267 batting average, so not so much. But uh, it looks as though Adam Duvall could really be in line for some playing time at this point. We're... we're projected 150 at bats right now and that equates to 10 home runs 26 rbis maybe a 236 batting average which is not so hot but uh certainly at the time when he was uh was playing uh in his in his uh, apparent prime uh hit over 240 at least so uh it may be worth looking at adam duvall you look at his uh at his numbers and his contact rate has been generally hovering around 70 percent dropped to 68 last year but uh, makes enough contact that he could get the batting average back into a respectable range and produce a lot of power. Two other uh, Atlanta players that Phil Hertz mentioned, uh, Austin Riley and Johan Camargo, all candidates as well to play at first uh, if Freeman's not ready. Yes, very definitely. There certainly are other candidates there. Uh, Freeman isn't ready, and, and Duvall, of course, could be needed uh, in the outfield uh, as well if, uh, with Marquecas bowing out. And Camargo, we were, don't might not remember, a couple of years ago, $14 value, playing a little bit of third, a little bit of short, but then uh, fell off a cliff last year. I think he even got sent to the minors for a while. So these would be uh, certainly in the category of uh, long shots, uh, I reckon. Uh, and finally, Nick, uh, at Baseball HQ, in the uh, speculator column, uh, Ryan Bloomfield organized a big roundtable of a whole bunch of us uh, at Baseball HQ, uh, writers and analysts. And one of the questions uh, that came up was whether to spend your fab more aggressively or less aggressively given the shortness of the season. Uh, what's your take? 
Well, you know, I think I would argue for for a more aggressive uh, spending of fab, especially early in the season. In the, in the first place, the season could be over uh, any time uh, because of the COVID situation. I mean, they may get, get uh, 30 games in and decide that this is enough and we're shutting it down. So um, I don't think I would save my fab for the end of the season like as we normally do. Usually save some fab for that stretch run and for, for guys who are coming up and might contribute. But I think I would look at spending fab early, especially on guys who are hot. And the example might be someone like Dan Vogelbach last year, who in April had uh, 18, eight home runs, 16 RBIs, 328 batting average. Uh, really looked like someone that might be worth having on your team. Uh, and then dropped off a cliff the rest of the season once the pitchers figured out which pitches he was going to swing at, uh, how they could uh, manage to get the ball off the plate and have him miss it. Uh, those sorts of things, but it took him a while. And uh, in a season like this, a, a season of 67 at bats, eight homers, 16 RBIs, 328 batting average, that could be really big. That could be half the season instead of just a month of a regular season. So I think I would be tend to look at, especially guys just coming into the league or just really getting some exposure to the pitchers who might be able to continue a hot streak for a period of time. Uh, and could really give your team a boost. Of course, the other the other side of that is you probably want to drop them like hotcakes as soon as they fall off a cliff. Yeah, and the real problem with that it's uh, it's kind of like trying to time the stock market. You you always want to buy in when the low point is, and you always want to be sure to sell when the high point is. The trouble is, it's impossible to determine when those things actually are going to happen. But uh, I'm interested that uh, that one of the factors that you mentioned, Nick, in deciding is you really have such a li- limited time to benefit from the investment. Uh, again, I don't want to talk specifically like this is the stock market because it's not. But if you can get in in week one with a with a Dan Vogelback who gives you four weeks of good production, or even if you're luckier, somebody who gives you like all 10 weeks of decent production at basically zero draft cost to you, then it's certainly something worth doing. And I might even say we should be more aggressive than that. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a lot of really aggressive bids in the leagues that I play in that do have uh, fab bidding. In week one, as soon as the first opportunities arise, I'm go- I'm going to guess there's a lot of speculative big bids on um, rookie players, uh, guys who are stepping up like we've talked about earlier, like inherited a bit of a role, maybe uh, – uh, call-ups, I guess they don't have call-ups this year, but those kind of players where there isn't a clear and obvious path, but maybe you think, well, that that guy who starts, he gets hurt all the time, so I'm going to really throw a big pile of money in at the guy who takes his place if he gets hurt kind of thing. I, I think there's a case to be made for being really even more aggressive than we might even think of as aggressive bidding. Yeah, I think there may be very well in this kind of a season because, as we said, we don't know how long it's really going to last. We don't know if there's uh, and your league may suddenly find that uh, one week you're, you're swimming along fine, and next week you're deciding, all right, we're done, it's over, and whoever's in first place is in first place. So uh, I think I would uh, I think I would bid very aggressively early on, especially if you see a guy uh, who has some potential, and suddenly there's a path to playing time that opens up early. Uh, if somebody is, is hot, they're not going to take him out of the lineup. It doesn't matter if the regular comes back and is in, in good shape to play. Uh, somebody's hot going to stay in there this season, I suspect. I think you're right, and and then the last question that comes up strategically, or maybe more tactically, Nick, is 
if you know everybody in your league or you suspect everybody in your league is going to be very aggressive at the start of the season, is that a reason to zig while they're zagging and, and uh, maybe wait a week or wait two weeks and have your pick of the pick of the litter after the season has settled in and the, and the roles become more clear, uh, performances become more clear, and it's less of a gamble, and you might have the uh, you might have the the uh, sitting in the catbird seat with the hot hand if you have all the fab money in it because everybody spent it in week one. Right, it, you know, it certainly helps to know your league mates and know what they're likely to do, and that certainly that is a could we say that's almost the most important trait in terms of spending that fab is knowing uh, what what's what are, what your league mates are likely to do and how that's likely to happen. So I agree with you. Uh, if everybody is uh, is zagging, you may want to zig and, and hold back a little bit. So that's certainly a critical part of, of playing the game. That raises one more question now, Nick. As long as I've got you here, uh, do you think it's ethical for a, a fantasy owner to canvas uh, his league mates, call around and try to sort of suss out what their plans are for their fab or in other directions? Uh, or is that kind of a bit too much like intelligence gathering or espionage and should be left alone? Well, you know, it certainly, certainly is something you could ask, but do you really expect them to tell you the truth? <laughs> or, you know, I, I, it's one of those things that uh, I, I could ask the question, but I have no idea whether I would get an honest answer. And uh, they could easily say, well, my plans changed. I didn't lie to you. My plans just changed as the things developed. So uh, a question that could be asked, but I'm not sure I trust anybody in terms of how they're going to respond. Fair enough, Nick. Thanks very much for doing this. We'll talk to you next week, assuming that uh, nothing has changed as far as Major League Baseball's intentions, and uh, catch up with you about the National League next uh, week as well. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, news analysis from the American League with Ray Murphy. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, Dan Marcus looks at some National League central log jams in the outfield being cleared up by the DH. In Miners coverage, Chris Blessing discusses prospects in keeper formats who might be playing out the 2020 season. In Rotisserie Gaming, Matthew Cedarholm explains how to avoid starting pitcher disasters by using PQS scores, while Brian Rudd looks at recent ADPs in the NFBC. And in the Big Hurt, Matthew Cedarholm, double duty for Matt, looks at the new injury landscape with a discussion on injury strategy for this sprint season and coverage of impact players like James Paxton, Adalberto Mondesi, Stanton and Judge, Mike Clevenger, and a bunch more. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Let me tell you, the boys have been working overtime to gear up for this oddball season. All kinds of strategy reports, news coverage, plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And it's all why, even with COVID breathing down our necks, we still call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. The 1-1 swing and a drive to deep left field. It's got a chance. Upton going back. It's going to go. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Repeating. Home run, Bartolo Colon. Seven-line army in right field might tear this ballpark down. Cologne carried his bat with him until he was about 10 feet from first base. He's taking the slowest home run trot you've ever seen. He just got to Tim Tuffle, the third base coach. He is approaching home plate. He touches home plate with his first major league home run. 
and they are going to give him a silent treatment in the dugout. They have vacated. The Mets have left the building. Bartolo Colon is the loneliest man in San Diego as he reaches the Mets dugout after hitting a home run, and there's nobody there to greet him. And now here they come up the dugout steps. Yeah, wow. He- And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for news from the American League. And here with the stories and the analysis, co-general manager and columnist from BaseballHQ.com, it's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back. Yeah, with actual news to talk about and everything. It's uh, starting to feel a little bit more normal, which might be an overstatement, but hopefully <laughs> moving in that direction. I was going to say calling this normal is certainly is stretching the bounds of the term, but I guess you know a lot of people are talking about the new normal with, these, with this pandemic situation, and w- nobody really knows whether the light we're seeing at the end of the tunnel is a train or is the actual end of the tunnel, you know, second waves, third waves, all of these kind of things. So in the meantime, whatever it is, we have to cope with it. And uh, one of the things we have to cope with is the news that's coming out of Major League Baseball about players who are stricken with the COVID-19 virus, although many of them are not symptomatic or lightly symptomatic. So there's a wide range in outcomes, as we know from the news, when somebody gets infected. But let's talk about some of these players because there are some effects about quarantining and so forth, uh, not so much uh, long-term performance uh, problems, but uh, let's talk about a guy like Joey Gallo in Texas, for instance. Uh, what's the news on Joey Gallo? Yeah, he's, his case is particularly weird, and I've read some things in the last couple of days that are suggesting that he might be, again, mirroring society, uh, caught up in some of the questions about the veracity and accuracy of the tests, and that uh, you know because he's asymptomatic but keeps testing positive, that you know there was some question that... Um, uh, or I, I think he actually had one positive test and then a negative one, or he's been getting mixed results. So there's a question as to you know whether he really has it, or um, you know he's in quarantine probably for not too much longer because you would assume that uh, if he's asymptomatic, he's eventually going to get cleared. Uh, and that asymptomatic but positive thing seems to extend through most of the population on the AL side. You know when you talk to Harold later, you know Freddie Freeman's in a different bucket, but. Um, you know, Gallo, uh, Sal Perez, Miguel Sano, DJ LeMayhew all sort of seem to fit into this category where for hitters, we're probably reasonably confident that with uh, two more weeks until opening day that they're at least going to get into camp and get some quote-unquote at-bats before the start of the season. The pitchers, I don't know what your thoughts on this, Patrick, but I, I, I'm starting to think of the pitchers a little bit differently, even the asymptomatic ones. How so? Well, there's the issue of them ramping up, and you know we'll talk. Maybe we'll talk a little bit later about how much how much variety and difference there seems to be, and how far into games pitchers are going to be able to pitch in the first week or two of the season. How stretched out they are, etc. Um, and even for pitchers who are in this sort of asymptomatic but positive group, if they're not at camp, I'm I'm questioning how much throwing they're going to do. And even if it takes them until halfway through the summer camp to get cleared and actually join the team, you know, that might be enough for them to miss the first turn in the rotation or only be able to throw 50 pitches and still be ramping up from there. And then you get to their third start out of, I mean, what's it going to be 10 before they're at the 90 plus pitch level. So I'm worried about 
the value of an Eduardo Rodriguez, a Jesus Lizardo, um, and what they can deliver, even assuming, you know, even putting aside any worries about their health and just assuming they're going to, you know, shrug this off like most young, healthy people do. I, I, I think the even asymptomatic but positive status might be enough to ding their value uh, in what they can do over uh, August and September. Right. And it seems like we need to really keep a close eye on what goes on in camp. Having said that, it's going to be quite difficult to do that because of the bubble and and they're keeping people out to a large extent. And there are going to be very few games. I think the uh, Major League uh, ruling was that they're going to be allowed to have three preseason games against non-same team opposition. So not scrimmages, but real games. Only three of them right before the season starts, which is a very extremely small opportunity for us to take a look at these various players and see how they appear, especially the pitchers, as you say. And uh, what are you going to be looking for, Ray, when you see whatever there is to see when you're assessing how much faith to put into a a particular pitcher or a group of pitchers or pitchers in general? Yeah, and on the uh, three-game thing, I'm pretty sure that's not even universal. Uh, it's They're optional, and somebody, I think it might have been the Cardinals, said that they weren't going to play them. And I can only imagine that that has to do with um, travel and, you know, teams who, you know, teams who have opponents in close proximity that they can connect to, the Yankees and the Mets, etc. You can imagine it's a lot easier for them to throw together three games than the Cardinals to figure out I guess they'd have to go to Kansas City or Minnesota or something like that, and that's a much bigger undertaking. And then, but but you're right. I, I guess I, as far as the news, I've been encouraged that uh, just following along on Twitter, the Twitter accounts of the beat writers and those crowds have been quite active. You know, these poor guys are you know not allowed to get anywhere near these players but they you know, I, I saw one guy literally taking an iPhone picture through his binoculars the other day <laughs> trying to trying to get a picture of somebody down on the field from the press box level these guys are doing yeoman's work there and you know we, we are seeing some video which is interesting some decent video you know we saw the uh Masahiro Tanaka taking the line drive off the head from uh off the bat of Giancarlo Stanton comes to mind. Uh, it, it seems like cameras are rolling to capture some stuff. As far as what's actionable, what's what we can look at, really the only two things I care about or that are, are going to register with me are health and for pitchers, pitch counts. So you're not going to be that interested in balls and strikes, command, control, those kinds of things as well, uh, strikeout rates, anything like that, because ordinarily in spring training, we don't I mean, you look at it, but you don't really rely on it because we know that pitchers are trying to figure things out. They're trying new pitches. They're they're working on things that the coach suggests that are different from what they usually do. So we take all of that with a grain of salt. I wonder if that's different in this environment because they're they're they don't have the luxury of time to figure that kind of stuff out. They just need to get ready to go out there, and it one would presume that they're going to focus on just doing what they do and getting it. Uh, ready to go as quickly as they can. So maybe uh, if we see somebody has uh, an unusually high walk rate, it's it's more of a cause for concern than it would be under normal circumstances. Yeah, uh, grains of salt are probably the right metaphor there. I might need a whole shaker of salt for the reports we're getting out of these camps as far as performance. I mean, just to start at the top from the things we've seen uh, and those, you know, 
Grainy Zapruder film videos that we that I was talking about earlier. I mean, who are the umpires here? Is it the backup catchers or the third base coaches? It's somebody in uniform wearing, you know, a mask, but, you know, they aren't real umpires. So that's got to cast doubt on the results to begin with. Uh, and then on top of it, uh, I don't know if you saw the episode with uh, Garrett Cole giving up the home run to Miguel Andohar the other day, but that was pretty fascinating. It was the first, first day, first game. So they're figuring out the protocols, but um, real quick, uh, I think it was John Boy, the guy who did the uh, the work on the Astros banging at trash cans, who caught this video, but Cole uh, struck out the previous batter, and the catcher threw the ball around, and I guess the protocol is that the catcher throws the ball around, the ball goes out of play, because it can't go back to Cole to pitch with after it touches the rest of the infielders, which... You know, right. this is our reality, right? But then Cole got another ball and didn't like it, but, you know, wasn't sure he could throw it out of play or I don't know, maybe they were, you know, I don't know if there were <laughs> how many balls they had available that day or whatever, but he clearly was displeased with the ball, tried to tried to throw a slider, hung it, and Andohar hit it out of the park. And Cole clearly, as Andohar was going around the bases, was mouthed to the catcher, I didn't like the ball. So... <laughs> I don't I, I don't know what to do with any of this information, I guess is the bottom line of that story. Yeah, at a certain point, a lot of it starts to become the kind of noise that you can't ignore. Ordinarily, we talk about signal-to-noise ratio and uh, how much information, how much of it is just noise, but that kind of a thing, uh, I don't like the ball, sounds like a noisy sort of thing, but it's not really a noisy sort of thing. If you consider that he maybe lacked confidence in throwing the pitch, we, t- we hear about that kind of thing. Whether the ball itself, he knew from his long experience throwing baseballs that this wasn't, wasn't going to work as well. And there's lots of things going on that ordinarily we would find it much easier to dismiss, I think, that now we perhaps have to pay a little more attention to. Yeah, and then there's a macro-level point that comes out of this that I've seen several people try to ex- try to explore online without a conclusive answer yet which is this whole restart the abbreviated tre- spring training the you know the restrictions the, the fact that nobody's playing against their own team everything about this environment does it favor hitters or pitchers are we going to see an offensive explosion because we're picking up the season in the heat of the summer are we going to see pitchers ahead of hitters because that's typically what happens after spring training anyway are we going to see hitters struggling more this year because they're going to face more and different pitchers and basically no pitchers are really going to get, you know, be working while they're tired with these expanded rosters. And there'll be a, you know, we talk about how the late innings of games with these one inning relievers are, you know, so detrimental to offense. And that's just going to start happening, I think, earlier and earlier in games. I mean, there's so many contrasting variables here that I, I, I can't, I don't know which one is going to win the day, but knowing that would be sort of good information to have, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yes, it would. And and unfortunately, because we're not going to see any kind of extended uh, uh, exhibition season as we talked about, we're not going to really have a terrific handle on how the various teams are going to manage their pitching, especially in the early part of the season, because it's very easy for us to say, I can foresee a situation where we're going to see more use of the opener kind of thing, and then have the starting pitcher come in and get three or four innings, which qualifies him for the win. 
or they could just start the guy and let him go until he's, you know, reached some kind of fairly low pitch count and come out, meaning he has no chance of getting the win. And I don't think there's going to be any kind of universal standard that all Major League Baseball teams apply. They're all going to be using their data guys and, and talking about the individual pitchers and, you know, all of these kind of things that go on behind the scenes, especially using analytics that we're not privy to. And it just seems to make pitching, which is already something of a crapshoot, as we all know, especially starting pitchers, it makes it even more of a crapshoot because we just don't know how they're going to be handled in, as you said, they're going to get 10, 11 starts in a 60-game run. If the first four of those starts are truncated, whether because of poor performance or because that's what the team thinks is the best way to go about it, there goes four chances possibly for a win, which means now, you know, even if the guy wins every game he pitches the, the rest of the way out, he's already like a third of his, a third of his potential wins are out the window. Hundred uh, percent. You know, a couple of things about that. You know, there, there have been reports um, out already of teams talking about doing what you were talking about, even open, openers or piggyback starters uh, at the back half of their rotation as these guys stretch out. And piggyback starters are, to your point about wins, are only half the story. I don't want to know who the piggyback starters are. I also want to know who's going to go first and who's going to go second because it makes a massive difference for the reasons you're talking about. However. In that format, they could change week start to start based on matchups with the opposing lineup or any other number of factors. So, you know, even if there's a pronouncement from the managers, you know, in this summer camp, you know, I'm not sure I trust it for more than, you know, the first time through the rotation. And then, you know, back to your po- the, the larger point about that, you know, when, when we did the 100 game projections at HQ back in the beginning of May, boy, those were the days when we thought we were going to get 100 games out of this season. Right. Um, but when we did those projections, I looked at the way the projections flattened for pitchers in general. And the, my conclusion at the time was that, you know, there's less difference between the tiers of pitching and that I wanted to, if I was drafting in July, I wanted to build a big offense and sort of, you know, go classic Lima and fill in pitchers later. But I'm drifting back in the other direction now because I think the established quote, not necessarily the aces, but the, you know, the the, the number two, number, number one, two, three starters are the ones who are less likely to get piggybacked or paired with an opener uh, and you know the, the pool of pitchers who can actually get you wins is probably only half of what the population of the starting rotations is going to be, and the value the, you, you're going to have to chase those guys. I guess is my point. That's exactly right. Now uh, we got a, a story at Baseball HQ the other day. Miguel Sano, as well as Willens uh, Astudio, tested positive for COVID nineteen. I think that was on the fourth of July. Happy Fourth uh, of July to those two guys. They're both relatively asymptomatic. Uh, they don't have they don't have too much going on that makes you worry about their long term health. But they do have to quarantine, and they have to quarantine until they get at least two negative tests. And that we don't know how how long that will take. We don't know how long that will will be. But it's going to affect how they move ahead, getting ready for opening day, especially Sano. So, as a projections guy, Ray, how are you handling the uncertainty that surrounds a guy like Miguel Sano, who would probably be inked in for a full season of uh, plate appearances, especially in this short run. Now, all of a sudden you look at it and you go, how much playing time do we have to discount for the possibility that his symptoms get worse, that he's one of those guys uh, that, that the, the, uh, 
the virus lingers in his system. It doesn't always for people, but sometimes it does. It's quite, uh, there's quite a wide range of variants insofar as how fast the virus clears people and athletic, healthy people. It tends to be quicker, but not always. Young people uh, get the, get the virus and keep it for uh, six weeks, eight weeks. This has happened. When you're looking at Miguel Sano, Ray, what do you do to adjust his playing time? Yeah, kind of similar to the way we handle things in a regular spring training. I think we're being a little cautious at first. Uh, I don't think we actually have a defined standard, but what I've seen the playing time analysts doing is taking roughly a 10% playing time haircut, which is, you know, in a 60-game season, that's six games. That's a week, right? So we're you know sort of putting everyone a week behind schedule, which means that, you know, they're – you know, we're two weeks away from opening day, so if we assume that they're out for the first week, that's three weeks from now, which gives them three weeks to come back in, get enough reps in to be able to play, and then hopefully all systems go from there. But that's got to get adjusted based on, you know, how long, to your point, how long it takes to get those two negative tests and when they can actually get out of quarantine and back into camp. So, you know, that 10% is sort of the initial reduction, and if Sano doesn't turn up in camp in you know, the next probably five days or so, I would imagine we'd have to start digging further from there because I 10, 10 days or so, I think would have been a normal amount of time to expect a batter to need at the end of March to get, if he was coming back from a pulled oblique or something and how many, how many at-bats, how many reps he would need to get ready to go for opening day, a week, 10 days for a batter is probably about right. Can they compress that? in this environment because each team has like 30 pitchers sitting around in camp just waiting to throw to people and they can just throw Sano in the batting cage for you know I don't know how many swings can you get in a day and we're not restricted by only having one game and nine innings to work with so maybe they can press that I don't know uh but for now it's about a you know we're assuming all these guys are on the batter side are delayed about a week and we'll adjust as the individual circumstances warrant and I wonder what the definition of quarantine is as far as Major League Baseball is concerned. This may have been covered, and maybe I should know this, but if uh, if Sano or somebody like him, DJ LeMay, who comes to mind in New York, also tested positive, if they want to go get some swings from somebody who's who's throwing the ball at them from 60 feet away, which is 10 times the recommended distance for physical distancing that the experts say, and if everybody involves maybe wears a, a face covering of some kind, Who's to say that he couldn't go out and take batting practice every day if he feels all right? He's mostly asymptomatic. Maybe he could just go get his work. The only thing he's not going to do is be able to swing in game conditions. But if he's out there hitting against major league quality pitching and the instruction to the pitcher is try to get this guy out. No soft stuff. You know, let's, let's uh, you know, we'll have some lesser guy throw him some warm-up pitches so he can loosen up. But I want you to try to get him out. Maybe he can keep taking batting practice just as he would have if he wasn't quarantined because everybody's so far apart. I think that's right, and I think it probably is happening. I don't know specifically, so I don't want to suggest anybody's violating protocols or what or, or anything like that, but there was um, one of the local news stations in Boston here the other night was talking about one of the one of the guys, Sox guys, it might have been Bobby Dahlbeck or one of the prospects who were on the positive list, and they said something about. Um, I thought I heard them at least say something about he was sent to the Sox alternative workout place, the second field they're using, which is over at Boston College rather than at Fenway Park. And it sounded like 
something what, like what you were talking about is that you know they said that I think they said they assigned him there. Maybe he hadn't actually shown up there, but um, you know the, the suggestion was that uh, that you know maybe they, maybe he comes in at night when everybody else is gone, and like you said, they'd find one guy to throw BP to him or something. I it, it, what you describe seems at least plausible if the player's health allows for it. Right. Uh, just for a minute, let's move off of the whole COVID thing because there's oh, yes, a, a, another couple of injuries <laughs> that I think are, are pretty interesting to talk about, and that is the two Aarons uh, in New York. Uh, Aaron Hicks and Aaron Judge are both proclaiming themselves pretty much ready to go, and uh, Brian Cashman, when he was talking about Judge in particular, said uh, he hopes that the uh, idea that that Judge in particular will be ready for opening day rings true in his words. Uh, Chris Olson covered this for playing time today at Baseball HQ. Uh, what should Aaron Judge owners, Aaron Hicks owners, be looking for as far as uh, opening day readiness? Do you think? Yeah, there's the the guidance on Judge in particular was um, pretty interesting, but you sort of got to think about the. You know the, the entire history here, and the judge got hurt. Was it in the playoffs last year? I'm trying to remember. I was actually trying to remember because we're now you know ten months away from the original injury, and nobody quite appreciated how bad it was when it happened in the fall. But then he came to spring training, and you know was still limited by it. And then you know his his availability for opening day was very very questionable by the time um, he went, by the time camps got shut down, um, and he's not. 100% yet, you know, Cashman's comments that were sort of like a fingers crossed he's going to be ready sort of thing. Um, but we had chopped down his playing time quite a bit. Now, again, we're at, I'm looking now, we're at 85% playing time for him, which, you know, is about 10 days off over the course of the 60-game season. So, you know, we're probably projecting him to be about a week behind at the moment. Matt Cederholm in his big hurt column, Matt's our injury analyst, and he just you know, jumped up and down saying that there's still massive risk with Judge here and that, um, you know, there was, uh, he didn't quite call it witch casting, but that there was a, there was a lot, both, both Matt and Chris noted that there was a lot of wiggle room in Cashman's statement. Um, Hicks is a little more straightforward because, you know, this is one of those cases where his projected recovery time from a known injury was always around, middle of the season and that hasn't changed it's not like a judge situation where the goalposts keep getting moved or the, in- the severity of the injury kept getting sort of revisited it's you know he had an elbow injury and he's been out for a you know he missed a good chunk of the end of last year uh he missed uh, most of all august and september so i mean he's going on for being out for going on a year now but mid-season this year was always supposed to be his target date and if he was ahead of schedule, maybe he might have been back in May or June if there had been a May or June. But, you know, he's been quite adamant that he's ready to go. And that means that it's probably going to be less of Mike Talkman and more, uh, or, or at least Talkman becomes the guy who kind of falls back to the uh, back of Alfie role waiting for further information on Judge or Giancarlo Stan's calf flaring up again or whatever the next domino is to fall in the Yankee outfield. I noticed that the Baseball HQ playing time projection for Aaron Hicks went up by 25%. Uh, that sounds to me like you guys are a lot more confident that Hicks is 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 going to be ready to go. Yeah, again, it's you know the, the delta is always one variable, but the overall percentage is another. He's at 65% playing time for the season now, so that's 
uh, you know, given what we're saying here, uh, you know, about a 10 week season, every 10% is a week. So, uh, you know, he's, we're still projecting three plus weeks missed, which is, which gives him an opportunity, which might be just starting slow and playing every other day or two out of three for the first month until he proves the elbow can take it. Or maybe we're, you know, accounting for a flare up here, or maybe, you know, he comes out of spring training and they decide he needs another week and then plays five days a week after that. You know, the 65% is still a fair amount of wiggle room. Another player who benefited from the long break as far as injuries go is Red Sox outfielder Alex Verdugo, who was definitely going to miss some time at the start of the season had it everything gone according to normal. But uh, accor- uh, according to uh, the chief baseball officer of the Red Sox, Chaim Bloom, Verdugo is going to be ready to go when the season starts. And again, a 25% playing time increase for Verdugo from Baseball HQ's projections. Yes, and that's uh, a little bit more of a bump in terms of a role because that gets him up to 75%, which is probable, which is generally what I look at for a left-handed hitter as a full-time platoon role. Doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to get platooned. There might be some playing time upside here, just because if you look at the Red Sox, the way the Red Sox outfield is configured, they're actually very left-handed already with uh, Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, Ben Intendi, and Verdugo probably being the three starting outfielders. If they want to against the lefty, they've got Kevin Pillar as a backup uh, who can step in for one of those lefties. J.D. Martinez could grab a glove and go to the outfield. I'm not going to say that makes him an outfielder. He just masquerades as an outfielder if he wears a glove. But that's a way to get a second lefty onto the bench. And they could go even further and take uh, Jose Peraza out there if they wanted to and put Michael Chavis at second base. So they can get all of the lefties out of the lineup if they want to, but they probably won't. I would imagine you'd see, you know, one or two of the lefties staying in the lineup against the lefty, probably on a rotating basis. So if they did that, then there might be some room for Verdugo to play a little bit more than just an attritional platoon role. But yeah, the 75% projection of playing time right now is basically an all-systems go. And before we leave the whole uh, injury COVID uh, sphere here, I'd like to ask you about Mike Trout. The... Stories are that he continues to be worried about going out there and playing because he's got a a, a family situation. His wife is going to have a baby in August and he doesn't want to give his wife or child the COVID-19 virus if he gets it from somewhere uh, inside the baseball bubble. I mean, I don't know how likely that is and there are steps that one can take, but it's very serious news for anybody who uh, owns Mike Trout through an original draft or is considering taking him in a draft that's yet to take place. Yeah, there's a lot of ripples here, and I will confess that I have not gone and read the, uh, what is 113-page manual that MLB and the Players Association put out on the protocols and how all these things are going to get handled, but Trout seems pretty clear that he's not missing the birth, which, of course, is great, and based on the protocols, I don't think he can just disappear for three days and come back. Um, I don't know that he necessarily has to quarantine. It might be one of those situations like we were talking about where he needs to have a couple of negative tests and it only takes a couple of days rather than two weeks to quote unquote get back in. But yeah, even if he misses a week, that's, you know, as we were talking about, you know, a tenth of the season and it could certainly be more than that either because he leaves and decides not to come back 
or it just takes longer to get in and out. And, you know, we're not in Chop's head. We don't know what his thought process or calculus or what the uh, what the factors influencing his decision are. But for sure, you've got to ding his playing time. And we've got him down to uh, 70% now. So missing, you know, 30% of the season, which is, uh, you know, basically three weeks. So uh, we're definitely concerned that obviously knocks him you know he's still uh by our metrics a it's like a 27 dollar player in al 5 by 5 right now but in mixed leagues that probably pushes him to the back or out of the first round and i think one of the things that uh, when i read this story that popped into my head is you know mike trout could be viewed as kind of the lebron james of major league baseball and not just because he's in the same geographical area but a lot of the other players, I think, look to these super, super stars for their guidance in how they think about things. If Mike Trout just announces, you know what, first child on the way, got to want to be there, I just can't take the risk, I'm out. And if he says that, I wonder if there's uh, the like a, a rush for the exits like in a burning <laughs> movie theater, you know? Yeah, it's really very interesting. I was talking to somebody yesterday about the opt-outs that we've seen so far from Mike Leake to Markakis to David Price. And, you know, there, there are some specific circumstances there for sure, but there are also some commonalities. Uh, the commonalities being that these are uh, p- players generally on the back end of their career who in most cases have made a lot of money. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's just a financial decision, but it also means that, you know, players who are older, uh, you know, probably are calculating risk differently. They're more likely to have, you know, uh, f- you know, growing families. They may have older, you know, simple math says the parent of a 35-year-old is older than the parent of a 25-year-old most of the time. Maybe there are elderly parents in the picture who live with them or need care or what have you. It's the same things that all of us struggle with with trying to quarantine in society. But, you know, but, but there's... Uh, you can't overlook the financial aspect of it. That the people who have opted out have already made most of the money they're going to make in their career, and everybody who's still trying to make that big payday so far is in. So, you know, that's uh, this Trout tipped out calculus. To your point about him being the LeBron James and the massive credibility that comes with him, yeah, I'm sure that would get a bunch of people talking or, um, you know, thinking about things. You know, and then back to the Marquez example where. Marquez has opted out because he talked to Freddie Freeman and Freddie Freeman told him how absolutely awful he feels and how sick he really is. And Marquez got spooked and said, oh, okay, yeah, I don't want any part of that. I'm out. Um, you know, so point being, these guys do all talk to each other and whether it's Trout or somebody else or some other circumstance that, you know, um, their their decisions are likely not to be independent variables, and something could happen via Trout or somebody else somewhere along the way that causes a bunch of people to change their thinking real quick. Also, a lot of these guys are around his age, which means their family situations, a lot of those guys, of them are going to be similar. That is, they're going to have wives who are, who are uh, pregnant, they're going to have young children in their families, these kinds of things. And inside their families, maybe the, the wife or the mother-in-law or somebody looks at the paper and says, why are you playing? Do you not care about your kids as much as Mike Trout cares about his kids? And even absent that kind of pressure, a lot of young men might just say, 
you know what, Mike Trout has opened my eyes to this. This is too risky for me to deal with my family, my wife, my kids. And again, there's a, there's a reason that he could start a kind of an exodus towards the exits. Yeah, hundred percent. Uh, you know, we, we don't know anyone's totally specific circumstances, but we can extrapolate from some of what we're all living through just as Americans right now. And, you know, take the, um, you, you make a great point about the mother-in-law. What if there's a, you know, if a lot of families, you know, myself included, look to parent, you know, grandparents and in-laws to help out with childcare. But if schools open in the fall, we're not going to be doing that because elderly people, people with pre-existing conditions, et cetera, I don't want them exposed to whatever Petri dish is coming out of a school. Um, so, you know, that, that option goes away. And maybe it's just as simple as, you know, Trout needs to be there for his kids because his mother's going to be, re- his wife's going to be recovering from giving birth and his other kids are going to be, you know, daycare's not available and the mother-in-law can't watch the kids because, you know, risk of, risk of exposure or whatever, you know, that's that's relatable to anybody who's trying to navigate these same concerns right now. Certainly something to think about. Uh, Moving on, uh, Ryan Bloomfield writes the Speculator column, your old stomping grounds as it happens, and he wrote about watching how starting pitchers are ramping up for the season, and I thought this was really interesting because what Ryan uh, looked at was a kind of a combined new metric where he looked at average average draft position from the draft so far in July. Uh, Games started last year, innings pitched per game last year, Uh, how many times they got five innings or more last year, obviously qualifying for wins and then how often the team allows uh, starters to go deeper into games and one of the interesting findings he had was maybe we should be really looking very hard at the rotation in Cleveland yeah the Cleveland rotation is pretty interesting one of a couple of them because these guys are all fairly healthy fairly young and have demonstrated you know quite frankly you know workhorse tendencies they've uh, they've racked up the innings, and you know maybe some of this last year was because the Cleveland bullpen was Swiss cheese or whatever. But they, uh, you know, Terry Francona t- tends to lean on them heavily. So, uh, you know, Bieber was a workhorse last year. Clevenger was going very early in drafts this past spring until he got hurt, but that uh, that knee injury is fully cleaned up now. Uh, the other good news there is that Carlos Carrasco. There was some question about whether he was going to play because of the. Uh, health problems he had last year and that he's in a higher risk class now, but he seems to be, um, he seems to be throwing in uh, all systems go for go right now. Even looking a little further down, Aaron Savali looks like he's uh, going to be in the back end of that rotation. And if he demonstrates that he can carry the same kind of workload, then, uh, you know, that's, that, that's another option that you might uh, tack on to a back end of a rotation. Carrasco's already throwing six innings per start and uh, and says he's ready to go, and that's got to be good news for anybody who owns Carlos Carrasco and certainly a reason to target him. Uh, another couple of guys that Ryan pointed to as interesting candidates, uh, not necessarily because of team, but just because of individual performance, uh, right-handers Zach Greinke in Houston and Jose Barrios in Minnesota, and uh, the reason is tremendous reliability and excellent workloads. Yeah, I've sort of gone 360 degrees on these guys in the course of the last several months. Grinky in particular was a target back in February and March. Uh, 
we our projection for him was creating a gap between where he was going in the ADP and what we thought he was worth. So he was somebody I was drafting a lot of. But then, uh, as I was talking about with the May 100 game projections, I thought of him as sort of a loser at that time because he's sort of an accumulator. It's not that he has, say, in terms of strikeouts, it's not that he has a massive strikeout per nine rate. It's just that he throws a lot of innings on a very good team and accumulates a lot of wins and strikeouts by volume. And I was worried that in a shortened season that that would get that advantage over the rest of the field would get flattened. I'm now less worried about that. And he seems like the kind of guy who, while I would want to watch the reports we were talking about earlier, that somebody who can get through this, uh, you know, a veteran who can get through this uh, abbreviated spring training, come out and be ready to throw six innings. And if he can go six innings and push that out to seven innings, you know, I wouldn't rule, let's put it this way, I would not rule out Grinky being MLB's leader in innings pitch this year. And there's certainly value in that. Yes, there is. Uh, if he if he gets to 11 starts and throws six innings in every start, that's uh, 66 innings, and you can easily see a better pitcher, but a guy who's forced to go only three or four innings for his first three or four starts and then work his way up to seven or so could easily finish behind Zach Greinke in, as far as innings pitched, and that means that Greinke and, uh, to a lesser extent, I think Barrios, uh, have the advantage of volume because the as you said the the uh, the total volume is so much smaller that anybody who who creates volume has uh, that kind of advantage uh, and in Texas another another uh, rotation that Ryan pointed at they think their starters could be ready to go by opening day throwing 90 pitchers or more apiece and that would be a lot of uh, encouragement for anybody who's thinking about drafting guys like Lance Lynn and Mike Miner yeah, that was really the, uh, the the news item. That was the I think the first one I saw on those lines that really opened my eyes to the the idea that I was thinking about this volume thing, sort of backwards. Uh, it, the, when Lynn came out, and I think he actually threw a simulated game the other day where he threw eighty five or ninety pitches, and if he's throwing eighty five or ninety pitches now, he's going to be you know fully ready to go in a couple of weeks. He'll be essentially starting in mid season form. That's particularly fascinating because I think you and I talked about this back in the spring, Patrick. But with the new park in Texas. You know, there's some speculation about how those park factors are going to play. Uh, it's a uh, slightly smaller park by f- park by footprint, which should favor batters even more. But the, the really the bigger news there is they've got the retractable roof now, and they're going to be playing in air conditioned 70 degree degrees in August and September in Texas, rather than the 95 degree heat with humidity and the wind blowing out that they used to play in. Uh, across the street. So in terms of park factors, we turned this park into a virtually neutral park for our calculations that might back in the spring when I was setting up our projections. That might be a little bit aggressive, but the point was that you know Texas pitchers to begin with were a much better target for environmental reasons than they've been in past years. And now if you throw this news that they're ready to go, uh, minor and win in particular, ready to throw 90 plus pitches by opening day. I'm super interested in those guys. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, co general manager and columnist at baseballhq.com. And uh, we also had a really interesting column plus sidebar at Baseball HQ this week. Uh, Chris Olson and uh, Dan Marcus combined to look in some tremendous detail at the whole idea of the imbalanced schedule. And I thought they came up with some really interesting information here, uh, including the 
relative strengths being amplified or weaknesses being amplified because of the imbalance. Uh, talk about this column and what you got out of it. Yeah, I spent a good chunk of the middle of this week pulling apart that column, trying to figure out how to incorporate it into our projections. It was really just fantastic work by both of them. Uh, our friend, uh, you know, and our roundtable partner last week, uh, Todd Zola, sort of prioritized the changes he was making. Uh, he had a tweet earlier in the week that talked about this, and he ranked the importance of changes to project projections as the most important thing being the addition of the DH and the NL and what that does in particular to NL pitchers because they're not gobbling up the uh, strikeouts and empty at-bats they get facing opposing pitchers. His second important factor was, you know, a second less in terms of importance was uh, the unbalanced schedule and the sort of divisional clusters we're playing in. And his third factor, the least important of all, was the strength of schedule uh, within those, the, the, the different caliber of competition within the uh, clusters. So in this article, Chris focused on that last point mostly, trying to identify the pockets of stronger and weaker talent in the Eastern, Central, and Western clusters. It was particularly interesting because the thing I liked about it, it was he was looking for opportunities to exploit uh, platoon situations and looking for play, among other things, looking for places where, uh, you know, guys who platoon might play more or less than you think because of the predominance of pitchers they're going to face being one-handed or the other. Now, the, the problem with this is Chris correctly points out right at the top of the piece is you know we're still a couple of weeks from opening day and uh roles and job battles and that sort of thing are still playing out so chris made some assumptions about strength and there's also some noise still in who might be uh you know driving these factors for instance uh you know is brendan mckay what, what role is brendan mckay going to have with the rays just as one example but um it's exactly the right kind of thing we should be thinking about and it's something that I'm probably going to circle back with Chris and ask him to uh, revisit or refresh in the uh, couple of days right before the season to uh, to get us uh, see if we can get a little bit more precise on it because it is super important. One of the things that jumped out at me, and this is something I've seen in past years, but it's again, as I said, amplified this year is the uh, American League Central is so imbalanced with two strong teams in Minnesota and Cleveland and three quite weak teams elsewhere. I guess the White Sox are kind of in the middle, but the Twins and Indians could really hammer some of that pitching in Detroit and Kansas City. Yeah, they really could. The Twins are super interesting, uh, as have been pointed out on a couple of other podcasts already that I was listening to earlier this week, because not only do they get uh, heavy doses of the Royals and Tigers, but they also get... Uh, the Pirates on the interleague side. So they're something like 20 out of their 60 games are against the Tigers, the Pirates, and the Royals. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty good, right? Yeah. <laughs> but the other, Chris made another excellent point that I, you know, had sort of flown in and out of my head, but I hadn't fully processed in that each of these closed, um, we need a better term for them, but each of these closed clusters, the East, Central, and West, because they're closed, the the amount of wins within them is fixed. And with um, a third of the games within each cluster being interleague games, it's al almost that the, um, the the amount of wins with each, within each division is fixed. So one thing it means is on a seasonal basis, you know, you're absolutely right. The pirate, you know, 
those pirate royal tiger pitchers are going to be quite flammable. But on the other hand, there are there still have to be a decent number of um, you know in the aggregate pirate royal royal tiger. Uh, you know, those bad teams are going to play each other. Somebody's got to win those games. And perhaps more importantly than the starters, uh, somebody's got to get some saves in those games. So uh, it might be that, you know, we're, we're all fishing for saves and saves are going to be more fractured this season, just like everything else. It might be that your Joe Jimenez and Keone Kella are slightly better saves targets now because there will at least be some days where the Pirates are competitive and the Tigers are competitive. Well, <laughs> I'll take your word for it, but I don't think it, I personally don't <laughs> think that there's enough of that to offset the fact that they're going to get hammered pretty regularly Also, otherwise. Uh, one last note about the American League that I think was interesting in in Chris's study had to do with the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, On the surface, it looks like they're going to be up against some of the toughest pitching that anybody's going to face in that American League East cluster, plus their interleague. But they're going to see a lot of left-handed pitching, and a lot of their best hitters are right-handed hitters. you got Bo Bichette, you got Vlad, uh, Lourdes Gurriel, uh, maybe even uh, guys like Randall Gritchuk, Teoscar Hernandez. A lot of left-handed pitching means a lot of opportunities to rake, even if the left-handed pitching is, generally speaking, situated in a in a bunch of tougher pitching overall. Might be a tiny advantage there or an offsetting advantage that makes the Blue Jays a little more interesting than if you just glance at who they're playing a lot, you might think, I'm going to avoid these guys this year. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I'm being, you know, one of my draft strategies for this month is I'm being a complete snob about playing time. So, you know, I, I think you can, in a 60-game season, I think you can win your, especially your offensive counting stat categories. I think you can win them just by getting more bats than anybody else. Uh, so guys like Bichette and Vlad and even Kevin Biggio, I think we, we're pretty confident we're going to play every day. But, yeah, a preponderance or a, a better than expected percentage of left-handed pitching is great for Grychuk and Teoscar Hernandez in particular because those guys might have been something less than everyday players and they're not going to face lefties every day but if that means they're going to be in the lineup maybe a little bit more than we were projecting and also more productive than we were projecting because they're going to get a tilted balance of left-handed pitchers who they both pound yeah I'm pretty I would be pretty excited to roster both of those guys those guys were both uh, guys I was targeting pretty heavily back in March so I am I was very happy to read this analysis and staying in the American League East I sh- just should mention Dan Marcus wrote the sidebar looking at all the park factors and combining them in a very interesting fashion and he pointed out that the Yankees have a really favorable park factor schedule 80% of their games are going to be played in parks that are favorable to power including of course their own uh, the Blue Jays also pretty close in that regard. Uh, I think around 70% of their games are going to be played in good power parks, taking into account the pitching is going to be better and and those other factors. But don't discount uh, the non-Yankee American League East teams just because of these kinds of things. There are some reasons to still be uh, positive about them. Uh, Rafe, thanks a million. Took up a lot of your time, but I do appreciate it. Lots to think about, and we'll talk to you again next week. Absolutely, PD. Always a pleasure. Ray Murphy is co-general manager of Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League like a heat wave for Baseball HQ Radio. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 10th. 
Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 18 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch commentators, of course, Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, Apple Podcasts, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help new listeners find us, and more listeners means we can keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with an expert interview or two, maybe even three, plus Alex Becky's new feature, Hey Taxi, and my first extra innings commentary. It's a huge Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It's next Friday, and it is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.